Uh, well, today as we worship, uh, we do celebrate uh, the end of that uh, wonderful, blessed, action-packed, fun-filled week of Vacation Bible School with our thanks to Marianne Laura, our director, and a great, big, creative, tireless crew of people, including the world's greatest astronaut, uh, or should I say, pastor-not, uh, Nick Gonzalez, and all those who nurtured hundreds of kids who represent 100% of our future. Uh, today we celebrate the baptism of another child of God uh, who submitted with protest uh, uh, in our worship today, and we welcome him into the household of faith. Uh, today we stand between the celebrations of two national holidays with uh, Juneteenth behind us and Independence Day in front of us, and as we do, uh, we pray for our nation, uh, for liberty, and for justice for all. And today, as you heard in the announcements, we also celebrate the life and ministry of a consecrated Christian teacher uh, who served uh, also as a principal of the Lutheran School of our mother congregation uh, for many, many years as we give thanks to God for the seeds of faith and of lessons of life that Mel Schnackenberg planted in the lives of thousands of kids over the years here in the D.C. area and say to him, happy birthday and a job well done as you complete 90 trips around the sun. And I mean, what better verse with which to celebrate and tie all of that together for Mel, for the kids, for the nation than Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Some of you know that verse because it's your confirmation verse. Some of you may have that verse hanging on a wall in your home, or you've seen it on a coffee mug, or you heard it in a wedding homily or a graduation speech. I have it on a desk set in my office, engraved there, given to me as a gift by my friend Martin several years ago, and I see it every day. The words are intimate, they're personal, and they encourage us to know that God has a very special and important plan for each of us and for all of us together. And now having said that, I am about to wreck that for all of you <laughs> by letting you know that the actual context for Jeremiah 29, 11, if the truth be known, was everything but celebration and everything but hope. Uh, the setting or the uh, timeline is the late 6th century BC when the kingdom of Judah, uh, which included the city of Jerusalem and represents about the southern half of what you would know as the uh, state of Israel today, had lapsed into a period of decadence and disobedience and estrangement from God. Across the land, people were worshiping idols and making uh, ungodly sacrifices. Across the land, people were ignoring the widows and the orphans in their poverty and their distress. Others were adopting the pagan religions of, of foreign nations. And so this is a case where it just wasn't uh, one person or a small group of people, but an entire nation that had lost its way. And prophets like Jeremiah were out there warning the people of Judah about the consequences of all of that and telling them to turn back to God. But of course, they don't want to hear it. And instead, they persecute Jeremiah. They ridicule him for what they believe is his holier-than-thou prophecy. That's the context. That's the atmosphere in which a ruthless king 
by the name of Nebuchadnezzar from the kingdom of Babylon, way north of Judah, sees the lack of Judah's faithfulness. He sees their decadence. He sees their, their division and their, and their lack of focus and unity as a nation. And he decides that that will be a perfect time for him to attack. In the midst of their vulnerability, when they are most divided as a people. And so the forces of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's army, comes down from the north and they invade the city of Jerusalem. They destroy Solomon's temple. They set the whole city on fire. Everything that they had achieved, everything that God had given to them since their entrance into the promised land was now completely lost. It was gone. And they were left with nothing. And uh, in fact, in er as early, or I should say as recently as 1975, archaeologists were still digging up uh, Babylonian arrowheads in the city of Jerusalem from the ashes of a burned-out ancient watchtower. Also, about a week and a half ago, I guess, I was channel surfing at home, and I saw that the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark was on TV, which, as you know, is one of the greatest movies there ever have been about the recovery of the Lost Ark of the Covenant, the chest that holds the Ten uh, Commandments. Now, there are people who believe that the Ark of the Covenant is resting in a hiding place in the land of Ethiopia. There are others who believe that the Ark of the Covenant is resting below the uh, Islamic Dome of the Rock in the city of Jerusalem where Solomon's Temple once stood. According to the movie, it's resting in a U.S. government warehouse in College Park, Maryland. <laughs> but in fact, most people believe that the Ark of the Covenant was destroyed in the invasion of Jerusalem by the Babylonians when the temple was set on fire or it was taken back to Babylon and melted down for the gold by Nebuchadnezzar. If that isn't bad enough, what then happens after the attack is that a forced deportation took place of thousands upon thousands of Judah's people, including the king and the royal family, members of the high court, craftsmen, metal workers, and many, many others who were literally taken away in chains 800 miles north into Babylon, or what you and I know as present-day Iraq where their captivity would continue for 70 years. Now, if you find yourself reading the Psalms and you come to Psalm 137, you will find the words, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Zion. So the next time you hit Psalm 137, you'll know that was actually the context of those words, which is to say that the context of Jeremiah 29, 11 was not a bunch of happy kids jumping up and down in vacation Bible school. It wasn't, you know, the baptism of a beautiful boy on a Sunday morning. It wasn't a milestone in life and teaching ministry. And it's not fireworks on the 4th of July either. It was, in fact, and in truth, one of the most horrific and catastrophic losses that any person or any nation could ever possibly experience. 
with some of the exiles finally coming to realize that, hey, we had this coming to us. Others, still in disbelief, listening to false prophets you heard about in the lesson who went around telling them not what they needed to hear, but what they wanted to hear, to hang on because they would be back in Jerusalem in no time at all. Now, there's obviously a lot more to this story. Uh, but in case you're wondering, you know, why I'm going into all this and why it really matters to you, let me just stop right there and just ask you a couple of questions. Like, what is it that has you in captivity in your life right now? See, what is it that's holding you captive? What is it that's pulling you away from the life that God has for you, that he made for you, that he intends for you, the home that he has provided for you? What has your soul kind of wrapped up in chains right now? Uh, You know, is it an act of disobedience, lack of faithfulness, or decadence in your life? Is it something physical or uh, material going on uh, in your life or uh, maybe an addiction to one of the unholy spirits of this world? You've been worshiping idols lately in some way, shape, or form. You've been listening to the false prophets of the world that are lying to you and telling you only what you want to hear. Or does it have to do with something or somebody on the outside of you who in their own appetite for power attacks you when you're least secure, when you're most vulnerable in your life? Or is it one of those moments that happens to us in life that just rocks our world and it it shakes us up and it causes us to question, you know, where God is in all of it, like the, the changes and the chances and the accidents and the illnesses and the loveless marriages and the untimely losses we face, you know, all the time in, the, in this world. And how is it that my nation, which I love, my home sweet home, has also lost its way? And will there ever be a time when we all agree or we disagree but all get along and live up to that creed that out of many We are one. Now, you know, however you answer those questions and uh, and wherever those answers happen to come from, there is actually more to the story. And it goes on. And when it does, the exiles of Judah, now in Babylon, they receive a message. They get a letter from, guess who? Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah was not part of the deportation. He's still back in war-torn Judah. But he still cares about them after all that has happened. And so he sends them a message in which he doesn't tell them what they want to hear, but he tells them what they need to hear. He doesn't tell them that they're going to get an early out to their captivity. He gives them something way, way better. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the exiles in Babylon carried from the land of Judah. Build houses and live in them. 
In other words, make yourself at home where you are because you're not going anywhere anytime soon. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. In other words, you've heard the saying, bloom where you're planted, well, there you go. And then he says, get married, live life, find a spouse, and then uh, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage and let them have children. Increase, do not decrease. In fact, he says, seek the peace of the nation and the culture in which you find yourself and pray for that nation because if it prospers, then you will prosper. And do not listen to these false prophets running around among you because they are lying to you and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. You see what Jeremiah is doing here? Instead of telling them to resist the culture in which they find themselves, he's telling them, embrace it, engage it, transform it by the way you live. Instead of getting stuck in your waiting, thrive in the midst of your waiting by the way you live. And you can do that by the grace of God. Pray for the nation, seek its peace, because if it goes well for the nation, then it will go well for you. Or as we sometimes also like to say, living well is the best revenge. Well, once again, uh, the exiles uh, really don't want to hear that, at least not initially at first. And yet, it does point you to the power of living by the grace of God in the midst of your circumstances and not just getting stuck in your life because of your circumstances. It really does point you and me to the importance of believing and trusting in the goodness of God, in his higher purpose for our lives, in his provision, even when the hour is dark and the object of our hope seems to be very, very far away. Ultimately, it points us to words like Psalm 46, which says, God is our refuge and our strength, very present help in trouble. He never said to you, you're not going to have trouble. Just the opposite. You're going to have trouble. He's your strength in the midst of the trouble. Ultimately, it points to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world and he said to every one of us, in this world you got trouble, in me you have peace. That is the context. That is the true story beneath one of the most popular Old Testament passage that we hang on our walls and we have in our offices and we use as confirmation verses. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope, plans to give you a future. When you are secure in that relationship, well, there's just about nothing through which you cannot navigate and in the midst of which you cannot thrive knowing that come what may, the hour may be dark, the future may be uncertain, the object of your hope may be far away, but in the end, your God has claimed you to be his own and he will absolutely see you through. And you know how I know that? I know that because I've seen people in this congregation walking through all kinds of hell in their lives 
in the sufficiency of God's grace, trusting in him and experiencing the peace that passes all understanding that this world cannot give. When you know that and you have that, then you got something that no circumstance, no evil king, no disobedience can ever take away from you. And then the story goes on again, and look what happens to the people of Judah. They turn back to God. They return to God even before they return to Jerusalem and to the land of Judah. Because in the midst of their captivity, they recapture their faith, and they begin to worship in this foreign land where there was no place to worship. There was no temple either there or anymore in, in the holy city either. And so they begin to meet together in little assemblies and in, in little groups. And, and uh, those groups were known as assemblies. And the word assembly in Hebrew is the word synagogue. Born in the midst of captivity born in the midst of their trouble. We also know that, uh, you know, as many as 100,000 of them ultimately made it back to Judah and Jerusalem in waves when the 70 years were passed, but that many others never went back. They stayed in Babylon, and they thrived there. They lived their lives there. They engaged the culture, they embraced the culture, they transformed the culture, and yet at the same time they kept their faith. And that is what became the genesis of the Jewish diaspora throughout the world, and then centuries later set the stage for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I also think of that desk set in my office on which the words of Jeremiah 29, 11 are engraved and that I see every day that were given to me as a gift by my friend Martin. And I think about them because my friend Martin, he died in a plane crash a few years later. And yet I know, and I know that he knew that the fulfillment of his hope the guarantee of his eternal future was already provided. It was already secured. In the midst of catastrophic loss, our God has a future for him and for you and me. And so now, I don't see Martin with my eyes, but I have supper with him every week. And so uh, when you think about what it is that's holding you captive in your life, and wherever it's coming from, I would just invite you to think of a prophet from the late 6th century B.C. In fact, think of all the prophets. Think of the psalm and all the psalms. Think of the gospel, which is the story of Jesus coming to be the fulfiller of our hope and to the bringer, be the bringer of our eternal future. Think of all the people in your life who told you maybe not what you always wanted to hear, but what you needed to hear. And their words really did help you to go on. Instead of resisting the culture that you live in, think about what it would mean for you to thrive within it, to embrace it, 
to engage it, and even to transform it by the way you live in the grace and the truth of God. Ditch the idols. Tune out the false prophets because they're lying to you. Pray for the nation in which you live because if it prospers, then we will prosper and everybody will win to the glory and praise of the living God. And as you do, you know, my prayer is that the true story of Jeremiah 29, 11 will help you to love this word of God even more as he comes into all our joys and all our sorrows to set us free by his cross with a love that is stronger than death. And as we live in this life, he does, in fact, give us many, many things to celebrate on our way home to the new Jerusalem where hope is fulfilled and our future is forever in the arms of God in Christ. Amen.